Hey, if you've got a Bible, Daniel chapter 4 is where we will be. I want to speak to you the subject on the subject of werewolves working at Chick-fil-A. You say, hold on, Pastor, I'm, I'm new here. I was hoping you'd just kind of preach the Bible. It's what you do. This is the Bible. Okay, I promise you this is very clear in the text. Fair warning, once you see it, you can never unsee it. Okay, so there's that uh, on the front end. I don't know if you've ever been uh, to the house of the world's greatest chicken sandwich before. I hope that you have. Uh, And not just for lunch or dinner. I hope you've been there for breakfast because chicken on a biscuit with egg and cheese? Like, like who knew how amazing that could be? Jesus. Okay, Jesus knew that. That's his gift to humanity. Theologians call that common grace. Uh, for God so loved the world, he gave the chicken, biscuit, egg, and cheese. I mean, it's just all part of that. Uh, but uh, if you've ever been to a Chick-fil-A and you're polite, when you say thank you, they say, my pleasure. Yeah, they say, my pleasure. Uh, You say, thanks for this combination of amazing sweet tea and lemonade, literally the greatest beverage I've ever put in my mouth. They say, oh, that's my pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Legend has it, the founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, got the idea while staying at a Ritz-Carlton. Side note, if you've never stayed at a Ritz-Carlton, put that on the bucket list. My wife and I uh, had the privilege of going to stay at one for our five-year anniversary. Uh, greatest experience of all time. It was even better than I thought it would be. We had just enough saved up within that five years to stay for one night. So uh, maybe one day we'll be able to stay for two nights. Hashtag life goals. But when uh, Kathy said thank you to a hotel employee, the employee replied, my pleasure. Old TC thought those words made the Rich Carlton stand out as a luxury establishment, so he wanted to bring that same feeling to his restaurants, and he instituted the policy. If somebody says thank you, you say my pleasure. Uh, it's the same reason they go the extra mile uh, in bringing you your, your beverage, refilling that at the table. They'll do things like clean up your trash. I'm told even that periodically they'll go to the bathrooms and fold the little triangle on the roll of toilet paper. Never verified that myself because uh, stalls and germs freak me out. So if somebody else wants to, you know, see if that ever happens, just camp out in there for a little while. That might be creepy. I don't know. But uh, let me know. It's, 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 it's meant to create this environment of opulence and gratitude and luxury. So with that in mind, Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. That's, that's nice, King Neb. Uh, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. Did you see it? It's my pleasure to tell you about what God has done for me. What's interesting about this part of Scripture, which I'm guessing you realize, Daniel didn't actually write it. King Nebuchadnezzar wrote it. In fact, it's the only passage in all of Scripture that we have where a pagan king has written some of our holy texts. It's remarkable when you consider his past. Serial murderer, 
polytheistic, blasphemer, adulterer, among other things. Yet God reveals himself to King Nebuchadnezzar. Not only that, he allows this redeemed, wicked king to write a few pages in our sacred text. You should be thinking, wow, I'm not nearly as wicked as King Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe there's some hope for me today. There is. That's why I came to church today, to tell you that. There's absolutely 100% hope for you. Uh, But you're also probably thinking, what does this have to do with werewolves? Oh, well, get this. What Nebuchadnezzar records for us here in his diary is a dream. We'll read the dream in just a second. But the point of the dream is that he had become so arrogant and so prideful that God needed to get his attention because God loves him uh, like he loves you and me. So he warns Nebuchadnezzar to change or suffer the consequences. And uh, God is a God of his word. So when the king doesn't humble himself, He has a neurotic breakdown. The medical term for his condition is called lycanthropy. Roughly translated, that means wolf man. It's a strange malady, delusional disorder during which a person imagines himself or herself to be an animal. It's actually the primitive idea where we get werewolves. See, in early years of the BC, there wasn't much of a medical field. So when people started acting like a wolf, they just called it lycanthropy, wolfman syndrome, very creative diagnosis. However, uh, by the first century of the AD, our medical field had somewhat uh, advanced. Nonetheless, they were still confused by the disease because the symptoms of the disease uh, just you were acted like an animal. That's all there was to it. Like you could uh, carry on a completely logical conversation. You could live a fairly n- normal life, but at some point, like during a full moon or whatever, you would start acting like a dog. So it's kind of werewolves being werewolves, you know, lycanthropy. We get it. Uh, by the 1900s, neuroscientists have come onto the scene. They've studied these people. Apparently, it was pretty common to have a, you know, a core group to study. But what, whatever, they developed subsets of lycanthropy. If we could travel back in time, we would be able to diagnose Nebuchadnezzar with boanthropy. This is where you imagine yourself to be a cow or a bull. In case you think I'm making all of this up, uh, in 1946, R.K. Harrison observed a patient in a British mental institution with an illness virtually identical to what's described here in the book of Daniel. The patient wandered about the grounds of the institution. He ate grass as if he was a cow. His drink consisted of water. Harrison writes, quote, The only physical abnormality noted consisted of a lengthening of the hair and a coarse, thickened condition of the fingernails. So there you go. Werewolves and Chick-fil-A all right there in your Bible. Y'all should read your Bible. It's really fascinating uh, when you get into it. But uh, the reason I titled my message, though, Werewolves Working at Chick-fil-A, is because the entire premise for the chapter, which I've already alluded to, is that Daniel's trying to communicate, and God is trying to communicate to King Nebuchadnezzar, that there is punishment for pride. And the reason it's still in the book is because Daniel's trying to let us know that there is absolutely 100% punishment for pride. God hates pride. In multiple places in the Bible, God it says God opposes the proud. So let that sink in. The God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, the divine source who spoke the world into existent, 
existence completely opposes you if you're proud. Like he's against you. You're going up against uh, a, a, a hand you can't win. Like that's not a good place to be. Vegas wins that every time. You know, like the house wins that deal. That being said, I couldn't title my message, Pride is Bad, you know, or Don't Be Proud. You know, proud, Pride Sucks, because nobody would have shown up. That's because nobody really thinks pride is an issue for them. Yet pride is among the most destructive inclinations of our hearts. Pride prohibits you from believing your issues are a big deal. Everybody else, like when they mess up, they're horrible people. You know, they were out to get you. But, but us, I, we, you know, we, that was just a bad day. Uh, I, I didn't mean it how I said it. The, you know, my heart, that's not where my heart is. You know, God knows my heart. So I would urge you right now to be careful as you analyze your own thinking as we get into the meat of this text. Don't let your mind wander and begin to think, I wish Bill was here. You know, Bill, this is really for Bill. Bill needs to hear this. He could really use this. If your name is Bill, I apologize. Okay, it just came to me. Uh, but this is, this is for us. God brought us here this morning for a reason. He wants you to hear something. He's trying to communicate to each one of us today. Write this down if you're following along in your notes. Pride will cost you everything and leave you with nothing. It's my entire message in one sentence. Somebody wants to tweet that out, that'd be great. Uh, pride costs you everything, leave you with nothing. If you were drug here today against your will, you're kind of zoning in and out, trying to decide if you want to pay attention or not. You're just thinking about lunch. What, you know, what are we going to have? Uh, the rest of what I'm going to talk about is entirely based on that one sentence. That pride will, will cost you everything and leave you with nothing. And so if you want to figure out how that can change your life and how we can not be proud, I would urge you to uh, follow along. And I want you to think about something because we know from Scripture that pride was the very first sin. It was pride that allowed an angel named Lucifer to be kicked out of heaven and become known as Satan. Uh, Adam and Eve, the very first human beings on the earth, the very first ones to rebel against God, did so because of pride. They felt like they knew better than God. God instituted this rule, and they're like, well, this didn't apply to us. You know, Who else is there? I don't know. Uh, but it's been said there's really only the need for one command in the Bible— If you would get it right, you would get all the other commands right, and that command is don't be proud. Humble yourself. So let's see how God handles King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 and perhaps learn something for how we can handle pride in our own lives moving forward today. So here we go. Let's just start in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. Must be nice. But one night, I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. So I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream. But they could not tell me what it meant. At last, Daniel came in before me and I told him the dream. See how hesitant he was to bring Daniel in? 
despite the fact two chapters earlier we see Daniel come in and, and explain exactly what a dream meant. In fact, it led King Nebuchadnezzar to promote Daniel within the kingdom. He made him the chief of all the magicians and astrologers and enchanters. Like He's the CEO of this entire company. Uh, and, and instead of bringing Daniel in first, he brought everybody else in to have the dream interpreted. Uh, it's the same thing we, we all do. You know, we like to go to everybody else before we understand what, what God really has to say to us. We like to hear from all the other people before we want to hear from God. We like to, we like to be confirmed in what we want to hear. You know, we want people to, to tell us that that's okay, even though we know God might say something else. Verse 9, I said to him, Belteshazzar, that's his other name, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. While I was laying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and very strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves. It was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. All the world was fed from this tree. We're clearly not in Kansas. You know, <laughs> like we don't have trees like this. Uh, there. Then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. The messenger shouted, cut down the tree, lop off its branches, shake off its leaves, scatter its fruit, chase the wild animal from its shade and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and the roots in the ground bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the mountain dew that came from heaven. Because uh, we know that that's where it came from. You know, it's right here in the Bible. Never mind, that was a joke. These are the jokes. Okay. Uh, and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field for seven periods of time, or seven seasons, roughly two years. Let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers. It is commanded by the Holy One so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone He chooses, even the lowliest of people. Belteshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so, but you can tell me because the holy God is in you. Upon hearing this, Daniel was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king replied to him, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belteshazzar Daniel replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, not to you. The tree you saw was growing very tall, strong, reaching high into the heavens. It had green leaves, loaded with fruit. We, we covered all of that. Verse 22, that tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven. And you, your rule, it extends to the ends of the earth. You should know this is not hyperbole. Daniel is not uh, just trying to butter up King Nebuchadnezzar in this moment. Nebuchadnezzar did rule the known world. He had wealth and power and fame beyond anything anybody could possibly imagine. Both economically and politically, he advanced the entire world scene. We are why we're here today. I, it's not a stretch for me to say that because of some of the policies that King Nebuchadnezzar instituted. What's kind of funny is uh, he did a, a, some of that for a girl. 
as many men will do. He married a girl from the mountains. Yet Babylon, it was very flat. So he did what any good loving husband would do. He built her a mountain right in the center of town. Uh, if you're uh, a man married to a girl from Colorado, I apologize. You know, you'll have to figure that out for yourself. Good luck building the mountain. But on this mountain, he planted all kinds of trees and shrubs and greenery. And in the way that he did, it looked like the plants were, were just suspended there and hanging there. Uh, it was known in the ancient world as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. You've maybe heard of it. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. Alexander the Great actually wanted his capital city set up in Babylon because of how beautiful the hanging gardens were. Verse 24, this is what the dream means, your majesty, and what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow, and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. That means you're going to live outside. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone He chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning. Do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of his royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I've built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. Sounds like R.K. Harrison all over again, doesn't it? Now, two things I find compelling here. First and foremost, all of what God said was going to happen, it happened. This dream, it happened. That's because God's Word always comes true. The same thing happens in the hundreds of years that God predicts and tells us that His Son Jesus is coming. It came true. The same thing happened. God's Word never returns void. God's Word, it's going to happen whenever God says something is going to happen. But look at Daniel's reaction to the dream. It's verse 19. We'll put it back here on screen. Upon hearing this, Daniel was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. I wish the events foreshadowed in the dream would happen to your enemies, not to you. Like, I I don't want this for you, my king. It's almost as if uh, Daniel had a fondness or affection for King Nebuchadnezzar. Like, why would he respond that way? Because the, the king has abducted him from his home. He's taken him to literally the most ungodly place on the planet. He's physically assaulted him. He's threatened him. He's changed his name. So when God reveals the interpretation of this dream to Daniel, why is his first response not, yes, you about to get yours, King Nebuchadnezzar? Like, it's all coming down to an end now. We're going down, down, down to Chinatown. You know what I'm saying? Like, why, why is he happy, or why is he sad and not happy about this, considering the things 
that King Nebuchadnezzar has done to him? How come instead of attacking the godless leader of his day, Daniel chose to humbly serve him? I think Daniel knew something that all of us need to know. Daniel wasn't respectful because King Nebuchadnezzar deserved it. He was respectful because God commanded it. Uh, Romans 13 says it this way, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know, I wonder how different America could look if everybody lived by this truth. Instead of polarizing each other and vilifying each other, I wonder what happened if we could just agree to disagree. That, no, I, I don't agree with that, but you can agree with that if you want to. I wonder what happened if we learned to respect each other and we were sad when the other party got bad news, not because they deserved it, but because God commanded it. Furthermore, I wonder how different the American church could look if respect and humility were the, and service were the tenets of our faith, not just something we talked about, but something we actually demonstrated. I mean, I, I think Daniel's humility led to compassion for an evil king. I wonder if our humility could lead to compassion for an evil world. I wonder if, if our primary focus shouldn't be so much on keeping the rules, but rather seeking the reprobate. I wonder how different our world could look if we, like Daniel, focused on living our lives the way God has commanded us, but we allowed God to take care of the discipline for those who didn't live that way. You've probably heard me or others say that our job is obedience. God's job is the outcome. You know, our job is not to enforce the rules. And here's what I know about the outcome of pride. Pride does not go unpunished. I know the pathway uh, to punishment, it's paved with pride. Now, you might think the punishment should happen sooner for some people. I would tend to agree with you, but both of us also thought that driving seven over on the way here was totally fine. Uh, You know, that didn't warrant a ticket if we would be pulled over because everybody else is doing it. So maybe our feelings on justice, perhaps they aren't the best to trust. Was that too close to home? I got awful, you know, lonely up here, and everybody's just looking at me. Sorry, not sorry, okay? Uh, Just so we can be clear moving forward, I think it's worth pointing out that pride, first and foremost, when you look at the, uh, it's when you look at the good things of your life, and you say, that's by me. I accomplished it. That's what we learned from King Nebuchadnezzar. He looks out on Babylon, look at the majestic splendor that I have created. So if things go well in your life, you look at that, you say, that's because I worked harder. The reason I'm doing better than other people is because I've worked harder than work than other people. I've worked smarter than other people. I've I've done it. I've worked more ethically. Whatever it is for your own life. But you say, that's by me. I did it. Now, that's pride. And secondly, pride looks at the good things of life and it says, therefore, I deserve. So it's because I accomplished, then I deserve. Pride looks at life with a very deep sense of oddness. There's an extreme sense of entitlement. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you something. This works for a good life or for a hard life. In the good life, you believe you achieved all these things on your own. So the blessings are a reward. You deserve them because of the time you've put in. But then when things are going badly, when things are not working out, what do you do? You look at your life, you say, I'm suffering more than other people. Things are not fair. I'm having a harder life. I don't deserve this. In other words, I'm owed the opposite. 
It's all the same thing. Entitlement works both ways, as a victim or in the sense of I'm owed this. And what you need to hear me say is in both situations, pride sucks all joy and all satisfaction and all contentment out of your life. It will cost you everything. It will leave you nothing. How? Because if things go well, you say, well, of course, it's about time. This should have happened five years ago. And if things are going really bad, then you say, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? Pride destroys your ability to handle bad times. It sucks the joy out of good times. Costs you everything, leave you with nothing. So what can we do? Well, the remedy for pride is repentance. You can jot that down. The remedy, the cure for pride, which we all have in our life, it's repentance. Look at verse 27. This is significant. Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break free from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Daniel's saying, I have some good news for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. There's a window of opportunity here for you. God's judgment is coming, but if you will repent of your sins, God will spare you. There's a way out of this judgment, Nebuchadnezzar. You don't have to end up in the field eating food off the ground like an animal. You don't have to be drenched with the the rain. Uh, You can change. You can turn. That's what repent means. You can alter your direction. You don't have to go through this if you'll acknowledge God and repent. And if King Nebuchadnezzar would have repented, he would not have faced this judgment. God was giving him a way out. Listen, understand, God does not want to judge us. If he wanted to, he would have done it already. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The last thing he wants to do is judge you. The last thing he wants to do is see you go to hell. The last thing he wants to do is see your life wasted and thrown away. You were made in his image. He cares about you. It's why he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty due you for your wickedness. And he made him a substitute so you wouldn't have to go through everything. Uh, Daniel's words to the king are the same words he would give to you right now. You can be forgiven. There's nothing you can do that God can't forgive and won't forgive. Uh, thank you. I thought I was preaching better than you were telling me, but that's okay. It happens. Uh, whatever. Uh, God does not do this, but I know many people do. So if you want to, go ahead. Compare your life to Nebuchadnezzar's. Compare your scores. Have you ever traveled to another country, abducted some of his people, taken them back through customs on a fake passport, uh, changed their names, physically assaulted them, uh, uh, defaced them, uh, changed their anatomy, enrolled them in a university, and then once they graduated to the, to the curriculum you established, you know, they're not choosing majors. You, you pick that for them. Uh, magic, there you go. Uh, once they graduate from this curriculum, did you put them into work in your institution when they did not live up to the expectations you had an employee? Did you have them murdered and then burned down their uh, work-sponsored apartment? Show of hands, anybody in? No, no, nobody. Okay. So then how can you be so arrogant as to say God couldn't save you, that he wouldn't want to save you? Of course he does. That's why he sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty to you. It's the whole message of the gospel. You can be forgiven. God loves you and cares for you and has made a way for you. But 
But it doesn't stop there. And notice what Daniel says next. He says, break free from your wicked past and remember the poor. As if to say that there's a couple things you need to do. You, you gotta, you gotta repent, but you also have to remember the poor. Your Bible translation might say, remember the oppressed. Here's what that means. The acid test to know whether you've been humbled in your pride is what you do with your money. You may claim, ah, yes, I believe in salvation through Jesus. I believe in the good news. I believe everything is from God. It's all a gift. But here's the true test. Are you generous with your money? Or do you act as if you've earned it all? <laughs> this is by me. I've, I've done this. You're thinking, oh, here we go. Had to get it to money. Church only cares about my money. Wrong. We care about what's you between you and God. Uh, the Bible says that it's easier for a uh, camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven. So I care about the obstacles. You say, well, that's easy, Pastor. I ain't rich. <laughs> ain't got to worry about that. Uh, the sheer fact that you live in America makes you rich. If you have access to a dollar right now, you're richer than 70% of the population. Uh, let's let that sink in. Billions and billions of people across the planet can't, can't even find four quarters. That's in your couch right now. You, you know, uh, dig through it, you'll find it. So indulge me for a second. What if you turn to somebody, you said, I'm in trouble, I need a loan, and that person says, how much? You say $10,000, but I'll pay it all back. And that person looks at you and thinks about it for a second. They say, I tell you what, I'll give you the $10,000, but all I want back is 1000 the rest is a gift. What would you say? How unreasonable. That's absurd. What you, I mean, who do you think I am? Warren Buffett? $1,000. No, you'd say amazing grace. Why would you do that? That's unheard of in this world. And yet God looks at you and says, give away 10% of your money to the church that I've created. And you say, oh, that's unreasonable. How could I possibly do that? They just want my money. No, 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 no. That proves in your heart that you still believe you're your own author. It proves that you don't really believe uh, that you've seen yourself as a sinner in need of Savior, saved by grace, and that everything, everything is a gift from God. And things kind of just got real again, didn't they? You know, in church, preaching out of the Bible. Let's end on a happier note. How about that? The opposite of pride isn't humility, it's praise. Um... The opposite of pride can't be humility because you can be humble and not a Christian. So therefore, the opposite of pride can't be humility. It has to be praise. This is uh, verse 34. After this time had passed, these seven seasons that we talked about, roughly two years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the One who lives forever. His rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to Him. He does as He pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop Him or say to Him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Notice that he said, when my sanity returned, as if to say, if you don't believe these things, you're insane. That is mean. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. It's remarkable. Notice he doesn't say anything about his past and what he gave up. 
he speaks of the glory of his future. When you speak about God, speak about all that he has done for you. Don't tell me what you gave up for Jesus. Tell me what Jesus gave up for you. Don't tell me what you have done for him. Tell me what he has done for you. Now, you might not be a great theologian. You might not know all the verses in the Bible, but you have a story. There has been enough that has happened in your life that you can say, here's what Jesus did for me. You can give praise and honor and glory to the one who is do it, uh, to the one whom is capital T true. And, and what's interesting about this specific passage of Scripture is after this whole thing and Neb looked up to the Lord and was forgiven, he only lived one more year and then he died. And what's fascinating is that within that year that God gave him, he wrote this unbelievable, wonderful testimony that we are reading right now. In other words, good thing he didn't wait another year to get right with God. So let me ask you a couple questions as we close. How much time do you think you have in order to get right with God? What's it going to take to bring you to your senses that God is the one who's running the whole show? You do realize that the heart that's pumping blood into your body right now, it pumps because of the grace of God. You do realize the, the air you're breathing into your lungs, uh, you're breathing because of the grace of God. Those hands that you work with, uh, the brain that you think with, they are all gifts from God. Make no mistake, if you go around in life swaggering and boastful and thinking you have done it all by your power, God is going to bring you to your senses. Uh, God is not somebody to be trifled with. Pride will cost you everything. It will leave you with nothing. What you should actually be nervous about is the fact that the Bible in Ecclesiastes 8 says, uh, because God does not punish sinners instantly, people feel like it's safe to do wrong. So we do something on the front end where we're like, nah, it's not that big of a deal. We don't get punished by God. And so we, we, the, the snowball starts going down the hill. And the sin gradually escalates it, uh, even more sin, even bigger sin, until at some point we're like, how in the world did I even get here? I didn't think I'd ever be cheating on my spouse 10 years ago. And yet this is, this is the path that I've chosen for myself. Make no mistake. It might be 10 years from now. It might be 10 hours from now. It might be 10 minutes from now. But one thing is certain. God will keep his word. You will reap what you sow. Please don't waste any more time fiddling around with something the Bible clearly says. It's going to kill you. The wages of sin is death. What you're doing by not following God's command is earning for yourself death. God is here. God is able. God is willing to bring you through. It's your move. Pride will cost you everything. The exchange rate is not good. It will leave you with nothing. But with God's Holy Spirit inside of you, you can alter the path of your life. You can change your direction. Uh, It's all by God's grace and glory and by trusting in Him that you can make the most of your life. Listen to me very carefully. God has created you with a purpose. He's created you to accomplish something great in His name. And listen, it's going to bring you joy and it's going to bring God glory. Amen, somebody. 
God wants you to live to the fullness of life. He set Nebuchadnezzar up for the world to see his beauty. And when King Nebuchadnezzar didn't follow through, he punished him. He's setting you up. You might be the closest thing to Jesus somebody ever meets. Which Jesus are they going to meet? Hopefully the God of the Bible, who's forgiven you by grace, by nothing that you have done, by everything that Jesus did for you. With every head bowed, every eye closed in here today, I want to give you a chance to respond to this God. The God of the Bible who says, I've given you my son. The Bible says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you can be saved. So if you're here this morning and you want to put your trust into Jesus, perhaps for the very first time, just say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've sinned. But I believe in Jesus that I couldn't do anything to save myself. So he died for me. He rose from the dead. And because of that, I'm made new. Thank you for saving me. Help me live for you. God, we know your command does not stop there. I thank you for that new life. I thank you for all the lives represented here. But I also ask you to encourage each person as they leave this place to figure out their and, repent and follow. What is their next step of following, God? Getting in a group, reading the Bible, uh, giving more generously with their time, serving, giving more generously with their income, whatever it is, God, I just ask that you speak to hearts right now. Do what only you can do. Help us discover how we can follow more closely to you. Because we believe richness and fullness of life is found in you. Help restore marriages, help restore homes, help restore families, help restore finances. Give each person in here power as they leave this place. All for your glory. And everybody said, Amen.